As I was sitting here before uh, we chanted the refuges and precepts together, I was struck by how in this room it can feel so still and quiet, even in the midst of all that wind out there. Have you noticed that? This stillness, this quietness in the midst of all that wind. To me, that speaks to so much of the blessing of this practice, the the heart of this practice of finding uh, that still quiet place in the midst of whatever the weather's like. That right there we can we can find rest. It's so available, so immediate. And what I shared with you uh, a couple of mornings ago was this, this encouragement to simply be willing to be present, that that's, that's our gateway into a different way of being with whatever the weather is out there. Which again, I like, I don't have to be present. I just have to have the willingness to be present. It situates my, my intention clearly. And tonight I want to share with you some reflections on how to support this willingness to be present, the art of this. And I'd like to begin with a story. Once upon a time, there was a monk of the Buddhas by the name of Sona. And Sona was practicing alone with great effort in the cool forests near Rajagaha. And it said he was practicing with so much effort. Arada Virya, with this resolute effort. And it said in the, in the Vinaya around, around the story that he was engaged in walking meditation so arduously that his, his feet began to crack and bleed because of all the effort that he was using to, to, to stick with walking meditation. But then what haft, af, happened afterwards is after all of that walk, walking, he became dejected and filled with great doubt and he had doubts about the practice and his, about his own ability. And in the midst of that dejection, you know, this thought, you know, arose in his mind. You know, here I am. I'm putting forth all this effort, yet there's, there's no taste of liberation in the mind. Basically, this practice isn't happening, yet I'm putting forth all this effort. And then the next thought came, I am so over this monk's scene. <laughs> I'm so over this practice. It ain't working for me. 
maybe I should just give it up. Maybe I should just go back to the, 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 the life of wealth and luxury before I had this. Maybe like Sona and maybe like me, you've had thoughts like this before. You put forth effort and it feels like it's bearing no fruit and then the doubt sets in. And the story goes on. So the story goes that right at that time that, the, that Sona was having that thought, the Buddha was hanging out on Vulture Peak. And it said, said that he knew the mind of Sona in that moment. Maybe the way I imagine this, maybe he had some kind of pre-modern webcam, you know, psychic web, webcam that could see into what Sona was doing. And when he realized that Sona was in the state, immediately he vanished from Vulture Peak and reappeared in the cool forest near Rajagaha where Sona was. And I'm sure he probably said, so Sona, what's up? What you been thinking? How's the practice going? And Sona shared uh, with the Blessed One, um, it's been tough, old Venerable Sir. I, I'm feeling so over the scene. I'm ready to leave being a monk. I put forth all this effort, yet it's, it's not happening. And then the Buddha asked him, isn't it true, Sono, that when you were a householder, you played this instrument, the vina, and the vena during that time was a, a, a stringed instrument. And, and, and Sona says, yes, venerable sir, uh, that is the case. And so he asked uh, Sona, when, when the strings were, were too tight, was the vena in tune and was it easy to play? And Sona said, no, no, venerable sir, it was not in tune, it was not easy to play. And what about when the strings were too loose? Was the vena in tune, was it easy to play? And again, Sona replied, no, no, venerable sir, it was not in tune and not easy to play. And what about when the strings were not too tight and not too loose? Was the vena in tune and easy to play? And Sona replied, yes. Yes, Venerable Sir. And then the Buddha continues. In the same way, Sona, this is really basically you saying, this is uh, what needs to be the case for our effort. It needs to be in tune, not too tight, not too light, loose. When there's too much effort or persistence, and you might notice this, the mind is too tight. And when there's not enough persistence, uh, the mind is too loose. And practice is, is not in tune. So tonight I wanna share with you some reflections about getting in tune, getting in tune with the Dharma. Having a kind of effort that's not too tight and not too loose. And I think, I feel that this is especially true here at the Forest Refuge. 
Some of you have mentioned to me how sweet it is to practice here because there isn't some structured schedule. And as a result of that, you can start to follow your own rhythm and get a sense of the rhythm that works for you. And I think this is one of the blessings of this place is what, what does it mean for you to be in balance, for your practice to be in tune? And you have all the space to, to get a sense of that, to figure that out. And to really play just with tightening and loosening the strings of your practice. Because for me, what I've noticed is this is so much of what this path and this practice is about, especially on long retreat is refining this balance, refining what it means to be in tune. A while ago, I was speaking with my sister-in-law who teaches uh, stringed instruments in public schools, like the violin and the viola and the cello. And I was asking her about this process of learning um, not only a stringed instrument, but a, a fretless stringed instrument. And she says it comes down to two things about learning how to play such an instrument in a way that it, it remains in tune while you're playing. One is just the mes- muscle memory, knowing, allowing the muscles of the fingers and really the body to really know where to place the fingers exactly to hit those notes precisely so that the notes are in tune. So it has to be in the body in that way. And yet at the same time, the ear has to be trained to really be able to hear in such a refined way if the note is in tune or not. And both of those together is what brings this art of of playing, playing in tune. And I mention this because I think it's like what it is to bring our practice in tune is that I need to get a feeling for it in, in my muscles, in my bones. Not something that I'm thinking about, but I have a feeling for it. I have a feeling for when the practice is in balance, when the mind is more in balance. I have a sense of when I need to vary it ever so slightly. And I need to be listening, listening really closely, but the, the, the ear has to be trained to hear in a very specific way. To really hear in a deeper way to our practice. And I name that to just really point out that my Dharma talk tonight as a result is gonna be so inadequate because I'm just gonna be talking about it. And really what's needed is you to, to, to play this instrument, play this path to really get a feeling for it, which just takes the repetition again and again and again to refine the bones and the muscles of your sense of the Dharma and to hear the Dharma more deeply. But let's move ahead and maybe you'll get something out of it. Who knows? And if not, that's okay too. And maybe you've noticed just these two extremes sometimes in your practice, maybe even while you've been here at the Forest Refuge. When it feels like the effort, the persistence is too loose. 
in particular, I'm situating this around the willingness to be present. There's kind of a too looseness around the willingness to fully be here, to fully be present for your experience. And I mentioned this a little bit a few mornings ago, that sort of kind of mindfulness rather than fully being mindful. I'm sort of kind of mindful, but not really mindful. Just taking it easy here at the vacation land that we call the forest refuge. (laughs) The food is good. (laughs) There's no schedule. So easy. The effort, the persistence can get loose. Or maybe you've noticed how the, the practice can get so tight where even in a place like this, the the mind and body aren't at ease. There's a tightness, kind of trying to make the the practice happen. Or sometimes what I notice what I'm doing is I'm trying to do the meditation, forgetting that that this meditative quality is really more a way of being rather than doing something. Or sometimes for me, it can arise in a subtle striving, you know, here, here I am, or here you are at the forest refuge for a limited time, and you wanna make sure you get something out of it, (laughs) right? You gotta get something accomplished. You gotta come back at least with one good story of accomplishment for your Dharma friends. And there it is, the tightness. So, so how to find the balance, how to bring the, the, the heart and mind in tune, how to bring particularly the effort in tune. And I boil it down really to one question. The broader question is, is what's the effort that's needed to really best support the willingness to be present in this moment? And you could say even more generally, maybe in this day. And then I shorten that question to, how can I be with this? And I'm gonna come back to this. How can I be with this experience right now? Or how can I be with this day in a way that's gonna support being with these experiences? I find it a a rich question And I use that question for some specific reasons because sometimes around talks around skillful effort, um, uh, having a practice that's not too tight or not too loose, if your mind's like mine, it might not be, but the mind can just start doing its regular thing of trying to manipulate experience, trying to kind of navigate it in some kind of way where, where I'm just trying to control it in some kind of manner. or manipulate experience so that that I'm not so much trying to support the skillful effort, I'm just trying to get rid of some experiences and try to have other experiences. But the question, how can I be with this, can can undercut some of those, those unskillful ways. And I'm, I'm getting a sense of how to be with 
this willingness to be present in particular, and that's going to come around, how, how do I be with experience? In a way that uh, I, I feel like is embodied by an image that I find very helpful, and it's, it's an image that I, I got from the teacher Gil Fronsdale, which I'm very grateful for, around skillful effort. The image of the continuous flow of a river over rocks. Like if you bring to mind maybe a stream that you're familiar with or a river, how the water is so soft and so yielding, right? so malleable, yet at the same time it is so persistent. And it's both of those qualities, continuous, persistent, yet so soft, so yielding. And with both of those qualities, the, 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 the hardest of rocks get smoothed. So in the, the sense of what we're doing here, being diligent, persistent in your willingness to be present and yet so relaxed. So let's, let's uh, apply this a little bit. Maybe you have an, a, a sense, a feeling sense. You feel it in your bones a little bit, in the, in the muscles. You, you hear that, that the, the string is not tight enough. It's a bit flat. It's not in tune. The, the, the practice is too loose. You know, the sort of kind of willingness to be present. And putting energy into your practice. This can be so helpful. And there's ways to do this, to kind of tighten the string a little bit. How can I be with my retreat practice? Oh, wow, I have a sense that maybe um, spending more time in formal sitting meditation and walking meditation, waking up earlier, going to bed later, maybe less reading, more sitting and walking. I appreciated the language that Caroline used uh, last week when she was talking about being inspired by stretching and stretching into, stretching into more sitting and walking. That way of moving into it. And at times I found this so helpful. It was a big piece of uh, the practice I was doing when I was in Monk. It was an incredibly rigorous schedule in terms of getting up quite early and, and going to bed quite late. And often it could feel exhausting, but once I got into the rhythm of it, there was a kind of energy that came with that. And from that practice, what I realized sometimes can happen is I can underestimate my capacity in terms of that. It's something that you might want to play with of tightening the string in that way. Or there's other ways to put bring energy into your practice. Like uh, a couple mornings ago, I mentioned the labeling, how that can bring a little bit more energy to this willingness to be present. Or the factor of investigation, which is interesting in the seven factors of enlightenment. It's the, the factor that precedes energy. It's, it's you could say, a, a creates the condition for, for energy. And the way sometimes I'll create a, a, a bring more investigation is I'll just ask this question every so often. What is this? Oh, what's the breath like? What's it really feel like? Oh, that pain in my knee. What, what's it really feel like? 
oh, the calmness, the tranquility that's now arising. Oh, what's, th- what's that like just to really feel into that? The activity of hearing or that sadness or despair or anger or joy. Ah, what's that like? Just a little bit of that quality of investigation that, that helps bring a curiosity that, that, that can pop out the momentary experience. Or sometimes the way I've addressed when the, when the practice is too loose is my willingness to sit through difficulty. Remember I was practicing in Nepal and Lumbini and I met this uh, Austrian, Austrian practitioner who had, before practicing in Lumbini, had spent a number of years practicing in Sri Lanka. And he said that when he was in practice in Sri Lanka, whenever these certain difficulties would arise, the monastics would say to him, oh, oh, you need to go take a break. You need to have a cup of tea. Things are too difficult. Just have a cup of tea. He said he did this for years. <laughs> and then he got to Lumbini. He was practicing with Saida Uvivakananda and was reporting his experience of it getting difficult like this. And he was saying, you know, I've always been told that at this point it's good to have a cup of tea. And Saida was like, are you crazy? This is like the unfolding of your practice. Like this is, this is when it's just cooking is, is right now. You need to sit with this. He said he was so grateful that just that instruction really allowed his practice to unfold. But sitting through difficulty like this water has to be so soft, so yielding, yet persistent. So these are some ways to sometimes address when it feels like the strings are too loose in some way. To help start to get a feeling for this continuous flow of the river, so soft and yielding yet persistent, uh, diligent. At other times you might notice the strings are too tight. And for me, and I want to point out this, it might be different for you, but for me, this has been the much more challenging aspect of these two, is navigating when the strings are too tight. Sometimes we think it's when the strings are too loose, but for me, it's been around when, when, the, when the practice is too tight. And it's because the, the, there's such an art to relaxation and ease. And what I came to realize, maybe it's all those crazy years after doing Zen practice, now you see the shadow side of staying late up, up late at night and getting up early with maybe too much order, is uh, it, relaxation and ease now is the basis of my practice. It, is, it needs to be at the forefront. Because what I notice is when there's ease and relaxation, ah, diligence is so easy. But if I start with trying to be diligent, that is such a bad setup for this mind. (laughs) It just gets tight. But if I start with ease and relaxation, then it's like diligence can, can arise out of that. And it's important to remember in this aspect, if you, if you just bring to mind right now how much effort it really takes to be aware, to be mindful. For example, feeling your hands right now, maybe feeling your hands touching each other. 
or touching your, your legs or your arms. How much effort does it take to feel your hands? <laughs> it feels almost effortless, doesn't it? So easy to feel your hands or to notice the activity of hearing how the sound of my voice comes and goes. Such little effort, it really a lot of times takes ease and relaxation. And sometimes the diligence is just remembering in an easeful way. So this is a real art. And as a result of this, sometimes for me, when, when there's a, a overall quality of tightness in the practice, sometimes I do the opposite, I, less formal sitting and walking meditation taking more, sometimes more spacious, open walks. So I wanna point out just the opposite of what I said around when the strings are too loose. Maybe the mind's getting tight around wanting or the inner critic has gone wild. And even around difficulty, there are so many practitioners, and this is something that I had to learn too, that really the skill was not um, having uh, the willingness to sit with difficulty more and more, but what's it like to sit with difficulty less? Sometimes people are like, oh, <laughs> what do you mean? That's not what practice is about. Practice is about being with stuff. But to actually do less because for my mind sometimes, doing less is more difficult, yet can be so sweet for the practice, especially around difficulty. When things get tough, maybe going for a walk, not sitting with it, and I'll get into a little bit more of the details of that. Having a cup of tea. It doesn't help to just get flooded over and over and over again and overwhelmed. That's not what we call sati or mindfulness. That's what we call getting overwhelmed. They're different. All right, the continuous flow of river over rocks, so soft, so yielding, yet so persistent, so diligent at the same time. And now I wanna bring this into this, uh, into examining how can I be with this around specific experiences? So how can I be with when the strings are too loose or too light in these general ways? I just shared that with you. Sometimes more sitting, sometimes more walking, staying up late, getting up early. Sometimes less of those things when the, the strings are too tight. That's how I can navigate. How can I be with this? By varying it. But how can I be with this maybe a specific experience in a way that's in tune and not too tight and not too loose? You can just pick your favorite experience, your not so favorite experience. 
So maybe I'll use the experience of fear or self-judgment or anger, but you can really place whatever you want into this example. I'll use fear because it will will fit in with a a quote I want to share with you. How can I be with fear? My answer to that is dependent upon how strong mindfulness is as a result of my willingness to be present. And what's important about this is I don't get to choose how strong mindfulness is right now. I can influence it, but I don't get to choose it. This is super important. Maybe I've said this before. You heard this, I say this, you can influence experience, but you can't, you can't control it. You don't get to choose. So when mindfulness is strong, I'm just with it. I'm just being with fear, even really terror. There's an ability to be with terror when mindfulness is strong. And all I do is I simply feel it in the body. I notice how it increases and how it decreases. I allow it to do whatever it wants. And I'm just there with it. Diligent, yet soft and easeful. And again, sometimes we can underestimate our capacity to do this. Allowing it to be unpleasant. And I think the, the Buddha speaks to this in this, I think, really beautiful way of the power of strong sati and his determination around fear and terror in this sense. For example, when he was practicing, he says, what if I, in whatever state I'm in, when fear and terror come to me, were to allow that fear and terror to subside, subside in that very state? So when fear and terror came to me while I was walking back and forth, I would not stand or sit or lie down. I would keep walking back and forth until fear and terror had subsided. When fear and terror came to me while I was standing, I would not walk or sit or lie down. I would keep on standing until fear and terror had subsided. When fear and terror came to me while I was sitting, I would not lie down or stand or walk. I would keep sitting until fear and terror had subsided. And when te- fear and terror came to me while I was lying down, I would not, stand, not sit up or stand or walk. I would keep lying down until fear and terror had subsided. That deep willingness to simply be with the unfolding of experience. I want to point out there is such a time and place for this kind of inner courage. but I don't get to choose. And if I notice that I'm sitting and fear arises and mindfulness isn't so strong, it's not so strong. And I ask this question or I have a feeling sense, how can I be with this? Because this, this question I feel like allows the practice to get in tune. 
Oh, interesting. Right now, because of how mindfulness is, I need to do something different than simply be with this. Sometimes what I'll do is just simply opening my eyes to be with something difficult, for example, like fear, can allow a kind of capacity to be there, to be with it, with a little bit more resilience. Or if that doesn't work, I might look around a little bit, having the sense of that feeling in my body in the background. Or if it's really intense, I might be with it going for a walk because for me, going for a walk is is a better way. And then sometimes when mindfulness is just starting to get overwhelmed and it really ain't working, then I ask, how can I be with this? And then I bring in other tools like self-compassion so there's a softening. Ouch, this is so difficult. This hurts. This is the human predicament and I care. I simply care. I don't have to figure this one out. That's it. Or sometimes to bring a little bit of kindness and compassion, I'll use the phrase, of course I'm afraid. No wonder I'm afraid. This is a scary thing. So I don't try to dismiss it or see that it's irrational. It's kind of like the child that wants the chocolate candy. Instead of telling the child about how it's going to rot their teeth, it's like, of course you want it. It's so sweet. No wonder you want it. And there can be a kind of softening that happens. That's the way I'm with it. And then on the other side, when mindfulness is actually overwhelmed and it can't be reestablished. And so what I mean by that is it's, this is a dramatic level. I'm getting flooded. I move away from the experience. I might read a book. I go talk to retreat support. Or as one of my mentors strongly encouraged practitioners to do it sometimes, this, he'd call it mindless gazing, which I thought was so wonderful. In some ways, not the practice, just to kind of being away, but to be away from the experience. In service of being with it. So hopefully you hear this whole range of simply being with it, with diligence, all the way to not being with it. And everything in between. And it's determined by my sense of what's needed right now. And what's so important, what I have to remember again and again, is I don't get to choose where I am on the spectrum. I don't get to choose if I'm over here on the right side of the spectrum when mindfulness is really strong, or if if the, the mind and heart are over here when mindfulness is getting overwhelmed. I don't get to choose that. I want to choose it. And I feel like it's somehow my fault of wherever it is. But that's just the way it is. Sometimes it's windy outside, sometimes it's not. And can you respond that way? That's the art of being in tune. How can I be with this? Just coming back to that question. And this is, I think, how we find. I find that feeling of the river flowing so soft and yielding and malleable, yet at the same time so diligent, so persistent. 
I find it was coming back to how can I be with this again and again and again. Maybe not verbally asking it, but a feeling sense of that. For me to find this balance, for me to find the feeling of river water this way, there's some things I need to keep in mind. And the biggest thing that I keep in mind is I need to be willing to make mistakes. I gotta be willing to, to get it wrong. And I don't mean the kind of getting it wrong in terms of kind of that inner critic that Caroline was talking about. The getting wrong that is situated around curiosity, even playfulness, exploration. And, and I wanna take some time uh, to offer some reflections around this because your mind might be like mine. Is like, I always wanna get it right. I hate getting it wrong. I avoid it like the plague. So I wanna share with you some passages from this. It's a great book. It's called Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error by Katherine Schultz. I think this comes from the introduction. She first starts with just the allure of always being right and how it feels so good to be right. And she questions this. She, she kind of asks, why is it so fun to be right? I mean, as pleasures go, it is, after all, a second-order one at best. Unlike many of life's other delights, chocolate, surfing, kissing, it does not enjoy any of the mainline access to our biochemistry, to our appetites, our adrenal glands, our limbic systems, our swoony hearts. And yet the thrill of being right is undeniable, universal, and perhaps most oddly, almost entirely undiscriminating. We can't enjoy kissing just anyone, but we can relish being right about almost anything. Yet if we relish being right and regarded as our natural state, you can imagine how we feel about being wrong. For one thing, we tend to view it as rare and bizarre, an inexplicable aberration in the normal order of things. For another, it leaves us feeling idiotic and ashamed like the term paper returned to us covered in red ink. Being wrong makes us cringe and slouch down in our seat. It makes our heart sink and our dander rise. Of all the things we are wrong about, the idea of error might well top the list. 
It is our meta mistake, meta M-E-T-A. It is our big mistake. We are wrong about what it means to be wrong. Far from being a sign of intellectual inferiority, the capacity to err is crucial to human cognition. Far from being a moral flaw, it is inextricable from some of our most humane and honorable qualities. Empathy, optimism, imagination, conviction, and courage. And far from being a mark of indifference or intolerance, wrongness is a vital part of how we learn and change. Thanks to error, we can revise our understanding of ourselves and amend our ideas about the world. So if you want to learn how to be in tune, you have to be really comfortable with being wrong a lot. That's how I learn is I get a feeling for what it is to kind of over effort. Oh, wow, I, I feel that. Wow. Yeah, I scraped my knees on that one. A few bruises. Oh, that's what that feels like. Oh, now I know what it feels like to under effort. Oh, and that's what begins to clarify where the middle is. But if I'm not willing to play the edges, I'm never going to learn where, what it means to be in tune. It takes this kind of playfulness around this, this exploration. And I think there can be this kind of joy that arises around it. I remember when my wife was reading this book and in the house, it was just so interesting. Each time she'd be wrong about something, she'd be like, oh, it's so cool. I am so wrong about this. <laughs> oh, there I am again. You know, I was wrong about that too. <laughs> it was so enjoyable to be around. It was so contagious. It was like, wow, now I can see how it can feel good to be wrong because now I've learned something. And actually I can find it, you can find it really helpful to be like, oh, wow, isn't that interesting? Kind of wrong there. Oh. Not quite right there. Cool. And it, it allowed me to look back on my, my practice history differently. So often when I look at my practice history and the years of practice that I've done, it's just like, oh my God. I cannot imagine that I practiced so many years so foolishly. Because I got it wrong for so many years. What would be worse if I didn't have that feeling, right? If I felt like I had just gotten it right all that time, that means I, hadn't, I didn't learn anything whatsoever. So if, if you look back at your practice like me, I just want to point out what a cool thing that is. <laughs> it means you actually learn something. It means that you're learning what it means to get in tune. That's what it is to practice. That's what retreat practice is. And it's tied, I feel like, to even to the realization and awakening that happens on this path. The third Zen patriarch, the Zen master, uh, Sensong, 
who wrote uh, the Xinjing Ming, the Faith in Mind scripture, or poem. And there's just one line that I think embodies this. He says, to live in this realization, to live in awakening, in liberation, is to be without anxiety about imperfection. So your struggles to find being in tune is, is, is part of this moving towards freedom. And it's important because one person's skillful effort is gonna look different than another person's skillful effort. And it's gonna look different from day to day in your own practice. There has to be this fluidity. And when this is the case, when I really get this, it also shapes uh, my understanding of how this path unfolds. I think so often there's so many kind of linear models of how the path unfolds. And yet for me, that hasn't been so true. I think it unfolds differently. Also knowing this about what it means to get in tune. And I think one expression of this is this... um, uh, I don't know if it's a poem or say it's a short autobiography. It's a it's called an autobiography in five chapters. Some of you might know this, which I think uh, explains this practice so well. It begins, chapter number one. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am hopeless, it isn't my fault, and it takes forever to get out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes forever to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. (laughs) There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am and I know it's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. 
it can feel like that, can't it? So I read that just to normalize that, that this is the process of getting in tune. This is the process of getting a feeling for that river water that is so soft, so yielding, yet so diligent, so persistent, so continuous. Yeah, so may our efforts on this retreat move into getting in tune in a way that leads to the liberation of all beings. Let's chant the uh, sharing of the blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.